Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to the From the Shadows podcast. I am the producer, Jason Lewis. I would like to thank you for tuning in to the From the Shadows podcast. And without further ado, here is your host, Shane Grove. Welcome, everyone, to the From the Shadows podcast. I'm your host, Shane Grove, uh, hunkered down here in the middle of the uh, coronavirus scare of 2020. Um with me tonight, but not in the same room because of the coronavirus scare of 2020, is the super producer, Jason. Hey, how's it going, everybody? <laughs> Boy, you sound like you're you're really in good spirits. Is that because you're not in the same room with us tonight? or is that... Don't tell them what them little beastie viruses may contain. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, also with us tonight is the judge. Good evening, everyone. How you how are you doing? Facing a little bit of extra uh, turmoil in the county this uh, this last week, Judge. Well, you know it's it's been a little bit complicated, and people are scared, and people are worried we're going to shut down, and people aren't going to get paid, and it's it's you know it's been quite the the challenge. But I think we got a good grip on it, and uh, you know, this is a, a good opportunity tonight to talk about some fun things that we're interested in and get our minds off those types of, you know, burdens that are weighing on people. So I hope people have fun listening tonight whenever this airs. Absolutely. So, so speaking of getting paid, are we still having our backroom poker game in the judges' chambers tomorrow then after, <laughs> afternoon? <while all> this <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so... So joining us on uh, tonight's episode is a is a prolific, and I do mean prolific, author from here in Ohio, uh, one Mr. William Krejci. Mm-hmm. You there, William? Oh, 
I am indeed, yes, yes. How are you guys doing this evening? <laughs> hey, hey, you're not supposed to sound disinterested for about <laughs> a half hour. Into <laughs> <laughs> I was refilling my glass. <laughs> oh, re- okay, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Just checking for a moment. <laughs> so, so, well, so thank, Bill, thank you guys you? for having me on. I, I'm, I'm do, uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, uh, and spill the beans with you guys. <laughs> hey, hey, we're excited to have you on. Um, we, you know, I've, I've talked to some other podcast hosts that have had you as a guest, and they just did oh. nothing but rave about you. So, oh, cool. so, so you got so the yeah the bar's been set a little bit high. Don't do not disappoint us. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I hope not to disappoint. <laughs> so, 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 Bill, tell us how you um, got interested in and and kind of give us maybe a little rundown of some of the titles, and I sure. think people will will figure out what your specialty okay. is or what your what your uh, uh, main interest. Okay. Um, all right. So, so I. Uh, I'll start a little bit with the, with the, the Franklin Castle, and I'll go from there. Um, as far as the Franklin Castle goes, and how I ultimately got involved with writing a book about that, this, we have to go back a long time ago. Okay, um, I was about five years old, and we're driving down the road, and we're taking the uh, scenic route home from my uh, grandparents' house in Cleveland at the time I was living in Avon Lake, and we're coming up to the corner of West 44th Street in Franklin, and my dad says, as we're all piled in the family van, dad goes, hey, guys, look, that's a real haunted house. And he points out the front windshield at Franklin Castle right across the intersection. And my jaw just about hit the floor. And I'm like, uh, what? Because <laughs> it's like my father, he never he never talked about anything like that. So for him to say something as outlandish as that, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, it must, it must be true then. <laughs> yeah, it it's got to be real. So, uh, so he started he started going on a little bit about it, and then I had a million questions. He's like telling me some of the things that he's read in the paper uh, some years earlier, and he's going on about this, that, and he's like, oh, well, he's like, you know what? You, you're just gonna have to look for it. And every now and again, they would have it on TV, and uh, or it'd be in the newspaper article, and they talk about it, and I'd be like all about it. And sometimes, uh, if we weren't in a hurry to get home, I'd make him drive past, which I found out people still do. They make their dad and mom drive past the castle so they can take a look at it. That's kids still do that today. So I always had this interest in uh, the Franklin Castle. So we'll we'll leave it there for a little bit and uh, I'll get back to that. Um, as far as writing goes, uh, I've always had an interest in uh, telling stories. Uh, always loved local interest. Uh, urban lore was a big one. So uh, I grew up in Lorain County. So a big one for us out there was Gore Orphanage. That was uh-huh. like a huge one when we were kids, and you might be familiar with that one. Oh yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, how, it's how, a great story. How much hmm? um, now? You haven't written a, a book on Gore Orphanage, yes? No, well, I yeah, it's 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 in there. It's in a new book that I just wrote. Uh, the book just came out back in September called Ghosts and Legends of Northern Ohio. I took that one very literally. So I wrote about the legends associated with ghost stories here found in uh, pretty much from Pennsylvania to Indiana and then from uh, 
uh, Michigan and the lake down to about uh, Route 22. So about the northern third of the state and just kind of included every little legend in there. And I started with the quote-unquote Helltown legend, uh, which is uh, Boston Township, uh, Peninsula, yep. kind of the Valley National Park pretty much. Um, and I concluded the book with the Gore Orphanage legend. Started with the telling of the legend, like I always love to teach you. I was going to put it in context and then get into the history and tell what really happened. So I was hooked on things like that. I was, it was, it was uh, the, the crybaby bridges, the, the quote-unquote witches' graves, or the haunted cemeteries. Uh, then you get these other little ghost stories about, oh, that's a haunted tavern, or uh, oh, don't 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 go near that railroad crossing. It's haunted. There was a there were some kids that were wiped out there back in the fifties. Yeah, you know, stories like that. So I always got really intrigued by these these great stories. Um, I also, though, while doing the research for the castle, I, I, re- I started really getting involved in castle research for Franklin Castle around nineteen ninety two. And in 2005, so 13 years later, I met a man named John Myers who was also researching it. We decided to pool our resources and write a book. So while writing said book, uh, a couple of years later, I had the fortune of meeting uh, Professor Walter C. Leedy. Uh, He was the uh, head of the art and architecture department at Cleveland State at the time. And I met him about a month before he passed away. Uh, He was fighting uh, leukemia at the time. And we were talking about this because he was very interested in uh, the castle. And uh, one of his um, one of his contemporaries, a friend of his, was Professor Dora Louise Wiebenson, who was the great-granddaughter of the people that built the Franklin Castle. So that's how I got to meet him. And he gave me the best bit of advice, kind of. <laughs> he said, <laughs> if you want to be a famous, rich, famous author, do not write nonfiction. And I kind of looked at him funny. I'm like, what do you mean? He had written a couple of books about the Terminal Tower. And he said, uh, I still have to have my regular job. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course you do. Um, most of it. He's like, if you want to make a million dollars as a writer, if that's what you want to do, write fiction. Because that appeals to almost everybody. Not local interest, nonfiction. And I'm, okay. So I kind of put the... Franklin Castle book on the back burner a little bit, and so, so I, I got to stop. Yeah, I got to stop okay. right there. So does that mean that I'm going to make a million dollars? Well, yeah, I was thinking. You know, well, I, I knew I knew I was going to make a million a million dollars, but I'm thinking, well, what can I do to write a really good book? Because you know, growing up, you know, you always hear the story of the guy who sets out to, or girl who sets out to write the great American novel, and occasionally someone does it. And I'm thinking, well. Who does that? Hmm. What constitutes a great American novel? Certainly not mystery novels. I set out a hell with it, and I decided I'd start writing mystery novels anyway. <laughs> so I started writing the Jack Sullivan mystery series, and there are three of them. Uh, I was never going to really publish any of them until I met a girl named Becky. And uh, she's very encouraging and really, really pushed and said, you know what? Here's here's something that we found online. Here's a great way that you can self-publish. And I looked into it, and I'm like, holy hell. So I did. So at the encouragement of her, I self-published um, my first three novels. And then we got married. 
And then, oh, seven, yeah, yeah, she became my wife. And then seven months later, seven months later, we separated. And then eight months after that, we got divorced. So I wasn't really married long enough to do any long-term damage. But that's why if you pick up my third mystery novel, you're going to find Tobeki, who on a summer night in Bay River Park by the fountain at Putin Bay said yes. And I keep thinking... The fourth novel will say to Becky, who on a cold March afternoon told me to piss off. <laughs> ah. And after that, I will never dedicate a book to anyone ever again. I will send out my sincere thanks, but that's about the extent of it. So I did. I um I started the first thing that I published and put out there were three mystery novels, and I I really do mean that that she really did encourage me, and I am eternally grateful for that, and um, many other things to my ex-wife. Um, so as far as uh, writing or getting anything actually published by an actual publisher went uh, at the time that uh, we were going through our troubles. Um, I was working on this one project. Somebody had asked me if I could find out if the bar that they operated here in Cleveland used to be a graveyard. And I kind of just stopped in my tracks, much like I did when my father pointed at the Franklin Castle and said, kids, look, that's a real haunted house. And I looked at this person and said, why would you suspect that your bar is built on a graveyard? Thinking that, okay, paranormal activity or something right out of the movie Poltergeist. And she says, uh, because Uncle Mike Carney dug up a tombstone in the backyard of the bar while he was operating the place. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So I went down, saw the tombstone, took a few pictures went online, started bringing up old maps, title transfers, everything. I'd throw in every resource I knew because I have a real knack for doing property research. So I'm throwing everything at it, everything in my toolbox I'm trying to find. I can't find squat. What I am finding, though, on some of these old maps from the 1870s are little gray shaded in squares that say C-E-M next to them, indicating a cemetery. Mm. I'm like, wait a minute. I know that spot. There's no cemetery. So I started going to these spots to see what's left of them. In some cases, there are tombstones in the woods. And I started finding more and more of them. Enough to write a book about. And I pitched it to History Press uh, with a title of Beneath Our Feet. And they changed it to Buried Beneath Cleveland. And that became uh, Lost Cemeteries of Cuyahoga County, my first published uh, novel through or a book through uh, History Press, Local Interest Nonfiction. I found over 50 graveyards in the greater Cleveland area that nobody knew existed because they have houses, gas stations, grocery stores, parking lots built on top of them. Some of them are in the woods and there are ruins left, and in some cases it's just somebody's driveway or their front yard or their backyard. Uh, interestingly also, as a footnote to that, I found out that the, the bar that they dug up the tombstone uh, it was not a cemetery. Um, it was just a one-shot one shot. It was deal. just a one, the one tombstone. Yes, yeah, uh, it's not a graveyard. Uh, the girl whose tombstone it was, uh, she was two years old. She died in 1871. She's buried in Garfield Heights, and she's still buried there. When her father died about 15 years later, they replaced uh, her tombstone with one that matched her father's and her brother's and this family uh. burial plot. So tombstones do travel also. So it probably made its way. Interestingly, that happened the same year that they built the bar, 1887. So tombstones travel, and it probably made its way north to Cleveland, um, was then repurposed as probably a paving stone going from the back door to the piss house. So that was probably what it was used oh, for. 
So yeah, so, the, yeah, paver going to the outhouse out back. So uh, that's what I and it was the most basic way I found it. I went to findagrave.com and <laughs> there it was. I'm like, okay, well that makes more sense. But it's interesting that because of my friends asking me to find out if their bar was built on a graveyard, because they dug up a tombstone for a two-year-old girl who died in 1870 or 1871 that that little girl who died over 150 years ago or about 150 years ago would change my life and get me published. Weird. That's, that, that's, that's how that things is, happen sometimes. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, uh, so what after happened, that... Well, well, oh, yeah? Before you leave that book, I, I think mm-hmm. I, have some, I have some questions about that book. Yeah. I think Jason sure. does, too, because he, he actually uh, mentioned that book to me uh, earlier today um but what so so what happened to these graves? i mean did they not move the graves when they just built in some cases in some cases they did move them um and in some cases they simply moved what they could find in some cases they well we've all seen poltergeist i think the original not the uh, lousy knockoff that came out a few years ago um, but in some cases, they, you only move the headstones. You left the bodies, didn't you? But you only move the headstones. Yeah. So that's the case, too. I even joke about that movie in the introduction. Um, but in some cases, <laughs> and, and, one of the places, and one of the places was haunted. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Um, but in some cases, they move nothing at all. Headstones, bodies, you name it. It's all still there. See, that was but my question. Very hard to get to. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, some of them, some of them are still there. Uh, let's see. Let me let me cite a few cases. Um, in one case where they moved the cemetery, there was the old Bedford burying ground, and this is this is one of the chapters in there. And this is really unfortunate. Uh, they were moving it in the 1880s, so to where the Bedford Cemetery is located now, just simply across the street. And the reason they did this, they were extending a railroad line across it. Now, when they went to move this one guy's wife, he wanted her casket opened. He wanted to look upon her again. Okay, they did weird things back in the 1800s, and he expected them to open the casket. And as long as the casket is well-sealed and well-preserved, the remains will remain intact and very presentable many years later. So he expected them to open the casket and find her in a state of preservation. But then, of course, when the air hits the remains, they begin to deteriorate. So he just wanted to look for a moment and then have them close it up. They opened up the casket and expecting to find her with her hands across her arms, they found her body contorted in a very distorted and terrifying manner, and the inside oh lining of the casket torn to hell. She had been buried alive. Oh, boy. Oh, oh my goodness. My that, that appears in a newspaper article, and the, the, the article is stated, a horrifying discovery, and it talks about how while they were moving the cemetery, and it was right then, it was the day after it had happened, that he was terrified to find, horrified to find out that his wife had been buried alive. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, it was pretty bad news. So that's yes. from where they moved the entire cemetery. One where they moved what they could find. Um, well, that would be, let's see, the old Ohio City Cemetery is a good example. And the first Ohio City Cemetery, this was located here in Ohio City on the west side of Cleveland. 
and what they would move, or what they claimed that they moved, um, was moved to Monroe Street Cemetery, which is now the oldest cemetery on the west side. So the original site, they built a firehouse on top of it. And around 1903, they tore down the firehouse to build a new one, and that's when they discovered coffins underneath it. And there were full coffins, and some old-timer came up and said, oh, yeah, we buried our daughter here in 1836, and this guy had to be in his 90s. I oh, no. Nope. If, if he had a daughter buried there in 1836. Um, he's like, and then the following year they told us that we had to move to the cemetery, and he looks down and sees all these open coffins there. He's like, now I wonder if the people we paid to do the job ever did it. So those remains were buried somewhere secret, secret that night. Um, but you'll go through Monroe Street Cemetery and you'll find one or two tombstones that do predate the 1836 opening, and those are stones that were moved where they just moved the headstones. Interestingly, though, that firehouse had a reputation, before they even knew any of this, of being haunted. It was Engine House 6. It would have the bell would ring inside while nobody was inside the firehouse. The horses in there for the uh, pumper team uh, would freak out some nights. One guy went down to light the furnace, and as you reach for the tinderbox on the ledge, he said that a ghostly skeletal hand reached out of the wall and grabbed at him. He would not go back down there again. Another fireman staying the night there was having somebody pulling the blankets off him. And finally, he jumped at the person after freaking out a few times, and everyone said, it's not us, it's not us. Finally, he dove at the person, and the person he dove at shot up like a rocket through the ceiling. That fireman died about uh, three or four weeks later. So it was really uh when they found out that this firehouse had been built on top of a cemetery. Um, the, there is no longer a firehouse at this time, if anyone listening is familiar, or even if you guys are familiar with uh, the uh, west side of Cleveland, uh, the Ohio City neighborhood, have you ever heard of the West Side Market? Yes, I have. Frequent there. Just a, okay, immediately to the south of the West Side Market, on the south side of the Lorraine Avenue, is a RTA station for the uh, rapid transit pulls up mm-hmm. for the uh, re- for the Regional Transit Authority. There's that. There's a road called Gearing and a road called Abbey. And then the northeast corner of what's now called Market Square, it's all about to be redeveloped, that is the old cemetery. It has a rapid station and a road over top of it in part of a parking lot. Oh, so, well, that's <laughs> so it. So if they do find if they do find some more bones there, well, we'll know who they are, roughly, kind of. So that did end up becoming, yeah, my first my first book. Uh, some of them you can go up into the woods. Uh, one of my favorites is... Um, uh, it's out in, uh, Moreland Hills. It's Moreland Hills? It's more, no, uh, Sagmore Hills, I think. Um, it's the, uh, old, um, and it's near Bedford. Uh, it's on, um, uh, Dunham Road over by Tinker's Creek Road, and this would be the old Gleason Homestead Cemetery, and if you go to the top of the hill to the east of Dunham Road, and it was called Egypt Mound, it's an old graveyard up there, and there are still tombstone remnants up there as well as the headstone for uh for one uh for edmund gleason uh whose father had owned the old tavern at the front of the road but edmund had also built the uh old stone house that's on the corner of uh tinker's creek road and canal road which still stands today he built that in 1854 and he died a few months later it's very sad so that's like a family that's like a 
That's it, like an old mm-hmm. family cemetery then that's just kind it of It is. Got, yeah, it is. Okay. Now it's in the middle of a metro park. So it's very hard to get to, though. And anytime, I, anyone, anytime anyone wants to go exploring, I always tell them, dress appropriately. Um, there are better times of the year than others to go. And I say this because of uh, wildlife <laughs> would be the best way to say this. Uh, I came out of uh, underdressed. I came out of one area. Um, wearing shorts and almost like flip-flops and sandals. And I came out and I had a tick on my leg. So, yeah, be oh. be careful. Yeah, yeah. no, he hadn't bitten me yet. So, and I, I discovered that. I'm like, whoa, holy moly. And um, uh, another time I was looking for, uh, down near Cuyahoga Valley National Park, I was looking for one tombstone near a meadow. And I'm looking around, I'm looking through this pasture, and I damn near trip right over a hornet's nest, which usually you see in the top of a tree right, or something like that. No, this was made two and a half feet up in the grass, right there in the tall grass. Oh, my and goodness. Solid, and I froze solid, because, I mean, if they were active, I'd have been stung to that bald-faced hornets. And mildly allergic um and then i freeze and i'm about to run and i stop and i'm like wait a minute it's december they're dormant and it's a good thing i didn't run because about 10 15 feet away in the direction i would have ran i would have run into yet another hornet's nest so yeah i'm terrified of hornets that's uh that's one of the but one of the you're okay with two, the other being tornadoes <laughs> you're okay with the tombstones but the hornets really <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tombstones don't bother me. a tombstone is just a beautifully carved in most cases a beautifully carved piece of stone uh i'm not even afraid of i'm afraid of no ghost you know uh, um, yeah yeah i have no problem living where i live because it doesn't really bother me so um so that was the first you know an I interesting yeah. just a, mm-hmm. to throw an interesting interjection I was just watching behind the scenes of the movies Ghostbusters, and they contacted Ray Parker Jr. and said, hey, we want you to write a song for the movie. They gave him two weeks, and he came back with the song, you know, that the became... He wrote it in two weeks. And yeah, you know, you're still you're still saying it. You're, people but, are still singing it. it right. Yeah, here, know, here it is. Oh, like 35 years later, and we're still... And we're still saying, I'm we're still is still part of it's still part of pop culture. Yeah, but do you yeah, know he blatantly stole the uh, bass line and the melody from "I Want a New Drug." Oh, you're right. It does sound a lot off. like you, you know what? He does. By Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis. Absolutely. Huey Lewis ended up. They sued him, and Huey Lewis is credited as a co-writer on Ghostbusters. Ah, so no kidding. I never knew well, that in either. Fairness, they, in fairness to Ray Parker Jr., they only gave him two weeks. So he basically lose somebody else's song. Yeah, I got wasted <laughs> off my ass one night with my brother. Um, when he was going through a divorce uh, some years earlier, and we wrote a song in one night, and it's called, it, it's one of those songs, it's like, it sounds like a sea shanty, it's a nautical tune, and it's one of the only songs ever banned from Putin Bay, Ohio, um, and it's called My Last Ride on the SS Filthy Whore. So, <laughs> but, I, but it comes with a legal disclaimer. I tell everybody, now the song is about a boat. 
It's about a boat. It's not about my brother's ex-wife, Terry Lesher, who lives on Rollo Road in Wellington, Ohio, who divorced him in 2005, took him for the house, the car, the kids, all their money, all their property, and had been having an affair on it with another guy for the last year of their marriage. It's not about her at all. It is about a boat. And the song is called <laughs> My Last Ride on the SS Filthy Whore. You know, with, so, it's, with an interesting parallel to that, an interesting parallel to that, since we're all talking about Ray Parker Jr., he did have mm -hmm. a, another my hit song is I'm in love with the other woman. With the other woman, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. That is an interesting Because his life was fine until she blew his mind. <laughs> yeah, there, there was even a video to that song. Yeah, I remember that, too. Uh, what do you mean? Remember, you still have cassette tape in your card, Jason. <laughs> I gotta say, I gotta say this. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the new Ghostbusters movie coming out. I mean, I saw that whole behind the, the behind the things uh, scene things where they were gonna call it Ghost Breakers, and you know, that thing they put on Netflix, and I was like, oh, that's so, oh, yeah, that, so weird. That and, was yeah. You know, how it's supposed the, to be John Belushi, and I can't, I can't. Yeah. I'm trying to picture the movie with John yeah. Belushi, and I'm like, that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, would have been. Well, then it was supposed to be uh, John Can John Candy was supposed to. Uh, yeah, uh, was also supposed to be in which I can't remember. Which, oh, um, Egon's part, I think. Hmm. I think and and interestingly, Harold Ramis was supposed to play in Animal House, which he co-wrote. So Schoenstein was supposed to be played by Harold Ramis. So, which, but they cut him at huh. the last minute. So it's cool that he kind of got the Ghostbusters gig, though, and that's one of the one of the. And for, he's always going to be and known for anybody for, just know? for anybody just tuning in. Yes, this is '80s trivia night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a child. Well, to throw an even bigger trivia to you was they originally tagged Christopher Walken to play Han Solo in the original Star Wars. Oh, don't. I heard really? that. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine yep. that I, if he would have actually got Nick that Nolte. role? I, I was, I was told by Nick Nolte. They were ready with Nick Nolte, and then they had the carpenter come in and audition, and Han Solo's had a face uh, with all of a sudden. Can you imagine uh, Nick Nolte flying the Millennium Falcon? And then <laughs> you know, I've tried to picture that since I've heard that. I can't. I can't picture it. Yeah, I, I mean, know. he was of course many years younger. I, I don't know. It'd be like, 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 uh, like having like Gary Busey or something like that. It could have been worse. I mean, no, no. Oh, Gary, Gary, I mean, Busey, I, Gary, I, I, Busey I mean, Gary Busey would have been Gary Busey would have been perfect. I mean, you saw his, his, his Oscar award. Didn't he win the Oscar for best actor in the in Stephen King's Silver Bullet? Yeah, you know what? Um, yeah, I I'm being facetious, but the, the one part at the very end of the original Star Wars where he goes, "Whoa, all right, kids, you're all clear. Let's blow in together." I can see Gary Busey mm -hmm. saying that. Yeah, so, so uh, <laughs> but wouldn't Gary <laughs> Busey look so maniacal too, though? <laughs> Gary Busey would have wrecked the Millennium Falcon, though, right? I mean, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you could see you could see Gary Busey when they're in the when they're in the Death Star, and he looks at Luke and says, "Where did you dig up that old fossil?" <laughs> in reference to Obi Wan Kenobi, right? Now, now, one one of the one of the greatest roles that I have ever seen played by any actor is Samuel L. Jackson, of course, in Pulp Fiction. But I had a dream one night that I was standing there and I was witnessing that scene in the beginning, where well, shortly in the beginning, where they go and they uh, retrieve the uh, briefcase, and he does his line. And yeah. I had the, for some reason in my dream, it was Gene Wilder in that oh. role. 
was he was screaming that, and I will strike down that man with great vengeance. But he's doing it as he as he was screaming in Young Frankenstein. So that <laughs> Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein. <laughs> I was like, get my creation. Just was a matter. I don't know. It was just a weird dream I had the one time, but I thought, oh, that would be interesting to see that. Of course, we never will now. But well, in some well, other now they got those deep fakes, so maybe they can do it. I don't know. Yeah, well, in some other reality, in some other universe, maybe it actually happened that way. <laughs> well, no one. Hey, well, the no wonder the are visiting it. In, no, no, no in, wonder aliens are coming here to see better actors in the role. Yeah. <laughs> All right, oh, man. All right, so let's get back to some serious goat stalk here. All right. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so, um, so okay, so wrote wrote the book about the cemeteries, uh, pitched the idea of the uh, book about the Franklin Castle, and this was interestingly, this came on the heels of... Um, uh, Paranormal Lockdown came in and de- did an episode of the Franklin Castle. Uh, and so they came here and shot this. And uh, when it aired, I was watching it, and I'm like, huh, that's a little upsetting. Okay, well, they didn't put that in, and they didn't put that in. So I sent a, uh, I sent an email to Nick Groff. Uh, I, I kind of asked him a couple of questions. They had, um, they actually had me come all the way to, to Cleveland from Putin Bay. Uh, to meet them at the house, walk through with them here at the house, and uh, go through like almost like a room by room tour of the castle and talk about the real history of the family. Um, so when it aired, I'm not on there. I, I didn't give a damn either way. Um, I, you know, I've been on TV before. I will be again, so it doesn't matter. Um, what I didn't like was the fact that I had told him. They had the story of Hannes Tiedemann, who built the Franklin Castle, being a murderer, is not true. They completely debunked that story, found out where it came from. And what did they do? They went with the original legend. So they also didn't um, thank John Myers, who was a contributor to the information I gave them. And they also didn't thank Professor Dora Levinson, who gave them photos, use of family photos. She's, as I mentioned, the great-granddaughter of Hannes Tiedemann and Louise who built the castle. Um, so I sent him an email and he called back and he's like, oh yeah, our producer taped over your interview so we didn't have anything to go on. We lost all your information. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you guys sent me a questionnaire weeks in advance and I sent you replies to all of this. You didn't lose it. It's bull crap. It's a load. It's not. Uh, so I'm like, okay, well, if anything else, this has inspired me to repitch the book to Arcadia History Press, who had already rejected it once. So I threw it at them, and um, they said, hey, it's too many words. If you can get it down to 54,000 words, we'll publish it. Hey, wonderful. So I called up John uh, Myers, who had written it with me, and we were on board. And they said, yeah, we'll have it out in about two years. And I'm like, okay, hold on, (laughs) hold on. I'm like, I got another idea somebody threw at me. And they're like, well, what's that? I'm like, well, you can get this out a little bit sooner. I said, okay, what is it? I pitched them haunted Putin Bay. So I spend uh, half a year living in Cleveland here at Franklin Castle, and the other half of the year I live in Putin Bay, Ohio, uh, out on South Bass Island. Um, 
So I've worked there seasonally as a ranger at a national monument. Um, and a guy up there named Charlie Holbrook, who runs the visitor center, had thrown the idea. He's like, you know, maybe you should do like a ghost walk or something up here. Sure, there's all kinds of ghost stories. And I started probing around that summer. And sure as hell, yeah, there was a bunch of them. And I'm like, well, that, that's enough to write a book about. So when I threw History Press the idea for doing a book on the castle, and they said, well, it's going to be, yeah, sure. Uh, we can get it out in a year and a half to two years said, okay, well, here's where you can get out in about a year, right? And they said, yep, we can do that. So I threw them haunted Putin base. I spent the entire summer collecting those stories from Islanders, doing research on the history of these places, but getting these, you know, getting these interviews over a few uh, bottles of wine or a number of drinks and shots. <laughs> um, got some great stories. So the following spring, haunted Putin Bay came out, and then that following fall, the book about the castle came out. That was 2017. So, so besides... Yeah. Besides the besides the fact that you, um, I think, live a life that is envious of all young men getting to live half the life on Putin Bay, half your year on Putin Bay, and then the other half in a haunted castle. Um, do you, do you ever sit back and say, "Man, I got it pretty good. I got it pretty good." Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I do every once in a while. So it's 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 kind of like um like one of those things where. Uh, yeah, you wake up in the morning and it's like, hmm, yeah, pinch me. <laughs> it's like, wait, yeah, exactly. I'm really here? Yeah. So well, do you, because do, both per- do you do? Uh, on, on, yeah, uh, honestly oh. speaking, both Putin Bay, my, my job up at Putin Bay is like a dream job. I mean, it really is uh, where I work. I can't believe half the time that they're actually paying me to do this. It's it's the best in the works. I meet, I meet the, some of the nicest people, but then, yeah, when the season's over, yeah, I come back here to to Cleveland and I'm oh, a historian at the castle, and it's it's great. So I sign books in the fall and winter and spring, and you know, talk, or give lectures and whatnot, and it's and I'm always working on new books. So yeah, it really is. It's something else. So now, are, are there ghosts? Do you, do you do then the ghost walks up at Putin Bay then? I do, yeah. We start. Um, I was approached uh, right around Easter of last year. Um, one of the girls over on the island, she works at the boardwalk, uh, Victoria Zakalova, um, uh, Mika, to, to her friends. Um, she approached me, uh, her, uh, her friend Jimbo, and uh, she had asked me about, like, she wanted to do a uh, historic village walk, like a, like a history walk of the, uh, of the village. And so, well, you know, it would be something that we can offer people. It's more families, uh, something to give families something more to do. And she's like, but I, but I need to know more about the history. So he's like, well, hey, talk to, talk to Guinness Bill. He's my, my nickname up there. Um, he's like, hey, yeah, he'll, he knows all the history around here. So she hit me up and asked me if I'd be interested. I said, yeah. And so we went and to get approval from the village, went before the council and everything. And we're, we we had talked about this right beforehand and said, hey, you know, we can also possibly throw a ghost walk in there too or something to do. And said, yeah, that would be great, you know. So we threw that um, we threw that at them. And uh, when we when we mentioned the ghost walk, they were really on board and stuff. I'm glad we did because the the historic village walk where we dress up and carry a costume and lead people on a walk of the village on Tuesday afternoons. Just it, we didn't get a lot of interest in that, but we were slammed on Friday nights though for that ghost walk. So the ghost walk kind of saved us. So we've kind of deep six for now, the village walk, and now we're doing the ghost walk on Tuesday nights and on Friday nights at Putin Bay. 
as long as we can gather in groups of more than 10 when the season starts. We'll see how this goes. So, um, so what, uh, it's, the haunted, it, it's officially, it's the haunted Putin Bay ghost walk. So, we'll, so what, we'll so what is your, it. let me ask you a couple questions here though. What's your mm-hmm, favorite sure. haunted story from Putin Bay? Oh, and gosh. then, oh, that's a and then, mind. and then I'll follow this up. And then what, um, like, did you, in writing the book, did you just go talk to people and get stories, or did you actually go do any kind of investigating and see if some stuff was valid? It was, okay, uh, great, both great questions. Um, let me see. One of my favorite places, one of my favorite ghost stories up there, um, would have to probably by far be uh, chapter one. It's it's the first story in the book. It's uh, the Park Hotel it's a remarkable building. It's one of the oldest continually operating hotels in the state of Ohio. Dates from the 1870s, and it is still in operation since the 1870s. So it's about to celebrate 150 years here in, uh, in a few years. Um, it, that has a lot of activity. I mean, it has history to back it, um, tragic events uh, throughout its history, but changing hands, colorful owners, um, the, the island itself is remarkable, but then the reports of paranormal activity uh, are just are fantastic over there as well, what people have reported. It's one of my favorite places on the tour, um, more so than the Cursed Fountain. And I always say it's cursed because that's where I proposed to my ex-wife. Um, <laughs> yeah, I throw that one on the tour every time. Uh, the Monument, Curry's Monument has ghost stories about it. Um what this was, was um, as far as my research, it was getting a lot of the stories from people. There were some places that, as you read, like the uh, existing island guides that say that the Dolor House is a haunted and that the Crew's Nest, which is a private club, it used to be a, a hotel, um, is, is a friendly inn, uh, is also haunted, um, and that there was a cemetery across the street from it. Uh, then there are stories from uh, rangers of the monument who had said, you know, that they witnessed this and they witnessed that. Um, talks about the Park Hotel, Ashley's Island House. There are all these stories that were already there uh, that I stumbled on. But when I started doing the research, because first, the, the first year, right before I pitched it to the publisher, I didn't know that there really were that many stories. And then everybody came out of the woodwork when I was writing this. And said, oh, yeah, no, 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 you got to check out, you got to talk to this person, or you got to talk to this person. And some of these stories did go back many years. But of all the stories that I met, that I wrote about, I missed the one that was the, one of the most important ones. And I won't go into great deal, details of it because I, I am going to be putting it in a future book. Um, just to clarify, though, I'm going to take a step back from writing those stories for a couple of years. Um, I'm still working on them. And I've got one great book in mind right now, but I did find a story of a haunting at Putin Bay in a newspaper, well, a few newspaper articles from 1891, and it has not been written about since. And I am like, where the hell is this? And I'm looking up every historic map and I'm looking at property owners that are mentioned in the article. And lo and behold, I find it. And one, my friend Steve, who I work with, he works in the maintenance department. He lives right next door to it. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, there's, oh, this is remarkable. This is an incredible story. So 
and I'm so pissed off at myself because I missed it when I wrote a book called <laughs> Haunted Putin Bay, and I didn't uh, put it in there. So, well, you so, know what? Uh, what, what I did. That. We'll blame that on your ex-wife. Yeah, this this one will be in um this will be in my next book. I just I just was uh, finally able to announce last week because it was official um, that I do have a new book coming out for Memorial Day weekend of 2021 called Lost Putin Bay. Now, when I say I'm not writing ghost stories for a little while, I'm taking a backseat on that. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to tell ghost stories because I will put that in the book. So you know you'll see that that in about a year when it comes out. Um, so that story will be there um, under the section for attractions. But otherwise, it's uh, going to be a story. The book will be about sites and uh, attractions and things like that on the island that are uh, no longer there or are no longer open to the public. Um, so that's going to be more site histories. Uh, like the cemetery book, only not as creepy, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't know why people always think cemeteries are creepy. I don't know. So, um, so that's that that'll be out yeah uh, Memorial Day of next year. Um, so I did have I did do a lot of research with sitting down and interviewing people, and it was usually over a few glasses and uh, my little voice recorder which I used to use for trying to catch EVPs and now they had to like interview people. <laughs> and um, I was really glad that I did. Uh, one one of the people that I did interview though Terry he passed away uh, the following spring. But I was really, I felt really privileged to be able to sit and talk with him as he shared his uh, stories of the Dollar House where he used to live um, up at Putin Bay, which is now the Putin Bay Winery. That's what it's called. Um, oh, okay. And nice. he he did, yeah, he did he did live there. It's 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 an old historic home. In fact, part of that uh, part of that house is the uh, oldest standing structure in the village. So it's just it was added on to, but it's dates uh, to the early 1850s. So. So you did well, have some stories about that place. So, so did you go and I mean, so did you go and uh, do any snooping around and seeing if any of the places were really as haunted as what people claimed, or or not? Personally, personally speaking, um, I'm not exactly a paranormal investigator. Not in the sense that I have the patience to sit for hours <laughs> and <laughs> ask questions into an empty room and hope to God that when I play back and I spend another three hours playing back the tape that I might catch something that doesn't. And I, and I hear like something, I make, I get something out of it. Um, I don't really have the patience for that, which is interesting because what I do have the patience for is spending about 10 or 12 hours in front of a computer trying to track down who's buried in an old graveyard <laughs> when there's no stones there, um, but finding out who owned the land and who, who, who those people are. Um, so I'm, I'm more of a historian. Uh, I do have a friend. Now, this was after the book came out um, about a year later. I met a girl, Christina Johnson, CJ, um, who came up there. Uh, and she's got um she's got her own thing going uh, called a uh, baseline investigations, and uh, she's a softball player, so she's really into that. Uh, so she called it baseline. Um, so she was up there, staying at the Park Hotel late in the season, and was doing an investigation of it. And uh, she came over to where I work and purchased a, a copy of my book. And um, asked me to sign it, and then um, so we we had a big conversation. But I had to get back to work, so I suggested me the drinks later. And you know, we met up for drinks, and then she had invited me over to the hotel to go check out 
some of the places in the hotel now. I used to stay there um, a few times, and it appears in my third mystery novel as a place, and there's a fictional character based on the actual manager. Anywho, there is a staircase in that hotel, and it's not the grand staircase in the front where you go from the lobby up to the upper floors, but there was a staircase in the back of the hotel that was a servant's stairwell, and it went from the servant's quarters up into a back hall, and that way the servants could come up and clean the rooms, and they're not using the front lobby, so you don't see a bunch of servants walking through the lobby. Um, Some years ago, that stairwell was sealed up at the Park Hotel, and it's accessible through the back of a closet. You've got to move this and move that, and then your next thing you know, you're in a sealed-up area where there's a stairwell. The interesting thing about this was some years ago, a woman was walking past the Park Hotel and came in and approached the poor girl working behind the counter and said, hey, um, I'm, I'm a medium, and I, I'm, you have this girl caught in a stairwell. And she just looks over at the stairs and says, what are you talking about? She's like, no, not these. There are other stairs somewhere in this hotel, and there's somebody that's stuck there. She's like, okay, well, whatever, and just kind of dismissed her. Her uncle worked at the restaurant across the street, so she went over and asked him. And he's like, that's interesting, because a few years ago, we sealed up a stairwell, and it's still there. So when I was there with Christina Johnson with Baseline Investigations, and she was doing her paranormal investigation of the Park Hotel, I got to see the stairwell, and she was catching, she was trying to get some EVP recordings. Um, so uh, that's the closest I've ever came to actually uh, doing a paranormal investigation at any places there. Otherwise, it's um, uh, me kind of hanging out late night with towards the end of the night as people are closing, we might have a few things happen. I did put a couple of my own personal experiences in there, but I changed my name in it because I don't like to, I don't like to write about myself. So I <laughs> gave, there's a, there's a park ranger at the monument named Martin. And there's a story about his first shift as a fee collector when the stanchion rope gets thrown across the, the landing. Um, there, there is no Martin. That's, that's actually me. So I just, Pick the name, and oh, really? I, I just didn't. I just didn't say. I didn't say. And I have my own experience. I just made up a name uh, uh, for myself. And then there's another scene that happens over at Joe's bar where um, a door opens on its own, going to the uh, upstairs, and a patron gets up and closes it and latches it, and then a few minutes later it does it again. I was that patron, so um, I did have my own experiences um, and continue to, which is. Uh, interesting, mostly at work or occasionally when closed, like sitting there near closing time at one bar or another. So, but some of the places I don't know the owners. Some of the places are like one of them is a private residence. I've only been inside them once, and um, yeah. So uh, I, I did have a few experiences, but mostly it was yeah interviewing yeah, people who had their own experiences. So that so that then I guess would lead us to finally having the the, the book on the Franklin Castle mm-hmm. published. Okay. Okay. So so I haven't I haven't read the book. Um, right. So is that book more of a history of the castle, or is it just is it a history and um, debunking some of the rumors does it tell some ghost stories in that or, or what what's what's that the about? answer to your question the answer to your question is yes um <laughs> it's all of those <laughs> it, it is uh 
it, it is the it is a complete conglomerate of everything you just said. Uh, it is um, it is history of the house. Okay, well, I start with the generic um, the generic legend of the Franklin Castle being everything that you're going to read online. If you go to like Google it, you're going to find that generic legend of Thomas Tatum and the original owner being a murderer, killing a servant girl named Rachel and a niece named Karen, three kids mysteriously dying in 1883, his daughter and his mother dying in the house in 1881, uh, Nazis, uh, mass executions. Um, Wait a second, Nazis? Did you say... Nazis. You say Nazis? Oh, yeah, Nazis. Nazis. Yeah, yeah. They apparently there were Nazis here during World War II using the house for spying reasons. Um, wow. <laughs> and then there's secret passages galore and vaporous mists and bones found in the walls in the 70s and a church and a, 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 a police chief that owns it and uh, huge parties and people getting driven out of the house after just owning it for weeks. That's where there's, that's the first chapter is all these huge legends. Um, and that, so we reiterated that, John and I, and then we would conclude that with, uh, it's a great story, but hardly a word of that is true. Um, we then spend uh, the rest of the time, before we start out, we go back to the very beginning, since all the legends of the haunting go back to the original owner, Hannes Tiedemann. And his family, he is such a big part of the story. I mean, everything always points back to him being a murderer, and that's why it's haunted. Um, we go from the very beginning of the book. Who was Hannes Tiedemann? Where did he come from? What is his story? Because his story is incredible. Um, so we spend about the first half of the book talking about this guy, and his family, who he really was, everything. It's a, it's a fantastic story. All the amazing crap that went into this building of the house, what it looked like, where else he lives, because he had another house built over in Lakewood, the next town to the, uh, to the west of us. Um, his family, we used family letters, photos that have never been seen before because the house is supposedly haunted by the wife and daughter of Mr. Tiedemann. And nobody had ever seen what they actually looked like. So we show those pictures in the book. So for the first time ever, people got to see those photos given to us by the family um, who, while doing the research, John and I became friends with. Um, they were fantastic, uh, fantastic people. They were, uh, they were really nice. Um, despite the legend, which states that Hannes Tiedemann outlived every member of his family, it's not true. He was survived. It is true that he did a... a he did survive beyond the life of his first wife and all six of his children, but he was survived by a second wife, a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law, and six grandsons. And all but six of those, all but one of those six grandsons had children of their own. And it's of those children that we became friends with while doing the research who helped us out immensely uh, with the book. So that takes about the first half of the story. And then we clear up the story about the Nazis. They weren't Nazis. Uh, they were German socialists. Uh, it was a singing society that had the house. Uh, there was a, um, a widow of a brewer. Uh, there was a doctor who has never been mentioned in any of the books until now. Um, then there's the, then we start getting into the ghost stories because those really ramp up in the second half of the story. Uh, that's when the story of the haunting really got public. 
but it turns out we did some research and we found out that the story of the haunting goes back about 50 years earlier to sometime between 1915 1921, when that doctor, who always got overlooked, when his family lived here, his daughter-in-law, who lived well into the 1990s, used to tell her great-granddaughters about when their family lived here and about how their blankets got ripped off them in the middle of the night and how things would get tossed around all the time. They only lived here for six years, and they got out. So you're uh, saying they were that never, the, yeah they were never yeah they were never mentioned in any book any story any article until John and I tracked them down and found out and it was very helpful because one of those great granddaughters that she had talked to was a girl that I went to school with my friend Kim <laughs> so oh, that was uh, very helpful and I'm so, like are you serious and she's like yeah she showed me her great grandfather's World War One draft registration and it has 4308 Franklin Boulevard I'm like yep there he is Leroy, or Leroy Shirky and there's some of the doctor like yep so so the house so the house had ghost activity clear back then ladies and gentlemen that's all the time we have for this week's episode Tune in next week to the conclusion of this exciting interview with William Krejci. In the meantime, chime in with a comment or visit our discussion page on Facebook called After the Shadows. Don't forget to tell a friend about the From the Shadows podcast. And as always, your support is very much appreciated. And until next time. Don't shy away from what may be lurking within the shadows. We are out. <laughs>sick of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.